kind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, was it that the former days were better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what has been bent? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. This is a rather lengthy chapter of Ecclesiastes, but there's a lot of great truth here. So we're going to start to wade our way through this. And if I could quote the profound words and the great existentialist moment of Dorothy when she said to Toto, I don't feel like we're in Kansas anymore. And Solomon is taking us into a new territory as we walk into chapter 7, and it's actually positive, although it seems very negative. There's a lot of great truths that he lays out for us, and so I'm excited to walk through them together. But a couple things that we need to be mindful of as we come into chapter 7. The first is this, that life is brief and death is certain. This is a thought that he keeps coming back to, but he touches on this in chapter 6, verse 12, and then he's going to bring us to this thought again in chapter 7. But life is transitory, so he asks the question, what advantages mankind have in life during a few years of futile life? And this really sort of gets the ball rolling. He asks a series of questions at the end of chapter 6 that he's going to answer in chapter 7 and following, but certainly death is... A focus of Solomon's as he writes Ecclesiastes, it is something that keeps coming back over and over again, and he depicts it as this inescapable reigning reality in every individual life. We all face death. Gangbanger said to me one time, he said, Steve, there's always going to be crooks and there's always going to be cops, and there's only one rule, we all die. There is truth to that. Solomon realizes this. And so he's constantly bringing before our mind's eye. The other thought is this, that life is complicated. Therefore, we're supposed to live with care because even though life is complicated, we can make it even more complicated depending on how we respond to the circumstances of our life. And he is going to highlight this for us and give us some principles, but he helps us to understand that life under the sun continues with all of the baggage of Adam's disobedience. In other words, we are living in a fallen, corrupted world. And this is a world that is plagued by sin. And he's not going to shy away from that as he talks about the crooked, crooked roads, the ways that are bent, the, the things that God puts in our life, but at the same time he's going to focus on the crookedness of man in the second half of this chapter. 
So these are important truths that we need to keep in mind as we walk through chapter 7. And if I could give you a title, it is this coming from the text, More Good Than. And I know that it makes for bad English, but it makes for really good Hebrew. And this is really literally what he says throughout this chapter. And it is interesting to me that he begins this way. A good name is better than good ointment. He says some things in this chapter that at first, when you first read through it, it's like, this doesn't sound very good to me. Sorrow's better than laughter, better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. What in the world is that? That doesn't sound very pleasant. And what he does through this is he acknowledges this is good, but this is even better. (laughs) And that's even harder for me to grasp. Right? Laughter is good. But this is more better than. Or if we are hanging out with the homies on the stoop, this is mo good, right? This is good, but this is mo good. So this is the journey he's going to take us on. And we have to ask this question walking into this, what is our view of suffering, pain, sorrow, adversity, and hardships? How do we see these things in life? Because... Most often there are those who seek to escape them. I mean, we really don't want pain, so we try to avoid pain. We, we try to avoid putting ourselves in situations where we're going to suffer or we're going to face some kind of adversity. We don't want to deal with these things in life. And so there are those then who despise these things because understanding the fact that suffering can be very painful. And who wants to go through that? But what Solomon is going to challenge us to do is that we need to learn how to value it. He is going to help us to understand we need to have a different perspective on life. Because the reality of it is we live in a fallen world, so therefore we are going to face suffering. It's the nature of the world in which we live in. But sometimes we act like it's not so. Sometimes our expectations are higher than they ought to be. So Solomon is going to help us with our perspective in dealing with suffering. And so I ask these questions coming into this. Do we learn more about God during difficult times or during happy times? Oftentimes for me, when it's a time of celebration and feasting and so on, and I know there are birthdays this month that people are celebrating, and we don't want to throw water on them and douse these moments of our life, but at the same time, there's a tendency that when there's celebration, there is a contentedness with life. This is good. But Solomon wants us to understand that life isn't that good. And that sometimes we need to think about death. Sometimes we need to take suffering seriously and understand that we can learn from it. Do we try to avoid sorrow and suffering at all costs? Do we find ourselves turning away from these kinds of things? Because suffering and adversity, sometimes we think this is God's disfavor in our life. And so for some, when they go through suffering, they ask the question, doesn't God love me? Doesn't He care about me? Why is He taking me through this? When we really need to stop and think about maybe God is doing this because He does love you. And he does care about you so much so that he is trying to help you to understand some things that we probably wouldn't understand unless we went through suffering. For me, I'm a little bit slow on the uptake. I'm a little bit thick in the head. It takes me a while to get things. So sometimes God has to get my attention. So we find with Solomon as we walk through chapter 7 that adversity isn't often 
as bad as we might think it is, oftentimes it is gooder than prosperity in life. Right? I wouldn't think of it this way, but it can be. So Solomon is going to help us see in the first six verses that there is instruction with suffering, but there are also dangers in regards to suffering. In verses 7 through 10, and I lay them out for you. First, there is the danger of corruption. There is the danger of impatience. When we go in times of suffering, we want to hurry up and get through this, right? We become very impatient. And we become impatient with God. And sometimes we become impatient with other people. I can find this with my own life, that when you're going through difficult times, sometimes you take it out on others. You're so impatient with the situation that you sort of, it spills over from your life and heart into the lives of others. Sometimes we get bitter and angry, verse 9. Sometimes we get upset about what's going on. That bitterness, though, is a difficult thing because that takes root in your heart and bitterness will eat you from the inside out. And sometimes it's nostalgia, verse 10, right? Sometimes we look, remember those good old days? Man, nothing like today. And what we tend to do with that then is we tend to live in the past rather than live in the present. And sometimes we think of the past in better terms than it really was, right? Think of the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and they're looking back at Egypt, and they're going, man, remember when life was so good, right? Pots full of meat and all of this stuff. No, you were enslaved, you were beaten, your children were killed. It wasn't great. But we do this, right? Oh, how grand it was in the past. And Solomon says, yeah, but then you failed to live in the present. And you fail to see the things that God is trying to show you now. So don't run away. So these things are a caution to us. And we realize that it's in not just the circumstances, but it's how that we respond to those circumstances that matter. So in Ecclesiastes 6.12, he asks this question, what good is for man in life? And this is going to be the hook on which he's going to hang a series of Proverbs in chapter 7. And the key word that runs through here is good, or sometimes translated in, in English better, it's the same word in Hebrew, tov, and he just plays off of this all the way through here. In other words, the better life involves bitter things. If I can be poetic and follow Solomon in this. But the bitter things at times are necessary because they can make life better for us. It's hard for us to grasp this, but this is true in life. And so Solomon is going to compile these Proverbs, and he lays them out, and he uses similar sounding words, and he is going to do this through this psalm. And it's interesting because in, in, when we walk through it in English, the words don't sound the same to us, name and perfume. But in Hebrew, it's shame and shemen. So as you read it in Hebrew, there is this connection that runs through here. And these Proverbs that seem to stand alone all of a sudden we find that they are connected together and they unfold truth as Solomon runs through this passage. We have words like song and pot and thorns, which in English they sound nothing alike, but in Hebrew, shir, sir, and sirim, you sound the same. So Solomon is going to take us on this journey, and it might seem like these proverbs he gives us are loosely connected but we will find that they are very connected and they have some amazing principles to teach us. So the first one, if you follow with me through chapter 7, is this, and I know we're not going to get through everything this morning, 
but I give you the rest so you can go ponder on and we'll get as far as we can. But he begins in chapter 7, verse 1. A good reputation is better than precious perfume. Immediately he's going to strike the note that we're talking not about surface things, we're talking about character issues. In other words, what Solomon says here is that a good name, a good reputation, is a fragrance that reaches far beyond its owner into the lives of others. This is an important thing, and this sort of starts the the pathway as he runs through this, because he is going to deal with deep spiritual issues. He is going to plunge to the inside of our hearts, and he is going to address the issue of who we are from the inside out. And what's interesting is that when Solomon talks about the composition of man, he uses words like soul and spirit in Ecclesiastes, but the overriding word that he uses is heart, because the heart is the seat of life, not just physical life, but spiritual life. And the heart is the issue. And it is almost always the issue for us when we face things in life. It isn't the stuff out here, it's what's in here that matters. So Solomon is going to make this contrast, and some translations render it precious perfume, or good ointment is literally what he says, but in the ancient world, abundance of oil was a sign of wealth. If you look through the Old Testament, you see that bodily oils were expensive. They were a possession of these oils and perfumes showed that you had prosperity, that you were wealthy, that you could afford these kinds of things. And it also reflected joy because oftentimes when you would wear these things is when you were at festive occasions. And so therefore, there was this element of joy that was linked with this idea. And so he is talking about prosperity. He is talking about this joy. He's talking about something that really then is on the surface. But what he's going to get at is that our name, our reputation, the life that we live, that is what really matters. That is the fragrance that really impacts lives. So he's going to talk about the issue of our name or our reputation, which reminded me of the fact that after the Civil War, there were those who managed the great Louisiana lottery, if you read history at all. There was an attempt to raise money to restore funds after the Civil War. And so there were those who were managing the Louisiana lottery, and they came to Robert E. Lee, and they asked him if they minded if if they used his name in the scheme that they were proposing. And it was a scheme. It was a sham. And they proposed to him that if you let us use your name, that you're going to become rich. And we find that historically there were two that actually gave in and let their names be used. And they, their reputation went down with this lottery. But anyway, Lee, he stood up and he buttoned his gray coat and he shouted at the men. He said, gentlemen, I lost my home in the war. I lost my fortune in the war. I lost everything except my name. My name is not for sale. And if you don't get out of here, I'm going to break this crutch over your heads. You see, I've lost everything, but I have not lost my reputation. I have not lost my name. And that is precious to me, and I will not sell it to anyone. He understood the importance of this. Reminded me of the old saying, every man has three names, or every woman has three names. If you want to apply it to yourself, one his father and mother gave him, one that others call him. We give each other nicknames all the time. I've done this to all of my kids. But then there is that name that you acquire yourself. And Solomon says, this is the name that matters ultimately. Proverbs 10.7, Solomon writes this, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. 
Maybe think of Mary of Bethany, right, when she anointed the Lord Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume and the fragrance filled the house and Jesus responded to her and he said, your name will be honored throughout the world and it is. What an example, right? But in the same instance, there was Judas Iscariot who sold the Lord Jesus into the hands of his enemy and his name is despised even today. He had a great name. His parents gave him a great name. It is related to the name of Judah, and it means to praise. But by the time that Jesus died, he had taken this great name and this honorable name, and he had made it something that was shameful. You have a Betsy Ross, and you have a George Washington, but you also have a Benedict Arnold. What does your name communicate to others? What is the kind of reputation that you have in the world today? Solomon goes on to say in the second line of verse 1, he says, your death day is better than your birthday. I don't know that I would say that. And when I first read these things, I'm going, really? And it's passages like this that I'm going, what was I thinking by getting into Ecclesiastes? My wife said to me the other night, thank you so much for helping make sense of this stuff. And I'm like, you have any idea how much I wrestle over this stuff? How is it that your death day is better than your birthday? And as I thought about this, I realized that Solomon isn't contrasting birth and death because you can't die unless you've been born. So what's he contrasting really here? He's talking about two significant experiences in human life. But more than that, he's talking about the life that lies between them. In other words, there is the day that you receive your name, and then there's that day when your name appears in the obituary column, but really it's the life in between that determines what this name is like, whether it is something that is a lovely, fragrant aroma to others around you, or whether it is a stench in the nostrils of those around you. In other words, on every headstone, there are two dates and then there's a dash in between. And it's the dash that matters because that is the life that is lived. No matter how long, no matter how short. And Solomon wants us to understand that we need to recognize our mortality. Listen to me, life is brief, death is certain. It comes to us all. The question is, what is the fragrance that you leave behind? What is the reputation that you have with the life that you live by the decisions that you make? Because you can be someone who is wise, but then you can do very foolish things. Verse 7, for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. And this begins a series of reflections in verses 8 and 9. Someone who is wise can act very foolish in times of difficulty. So he takes us a step further in verse 2 and he says, funerals are better than feasts. Again, I have a hard time saying this. But what is he getting at for us? Now what's interesting is if you look at this passage, I just have to tell you, there are ways that he links all of these things together. What at once when you read through it the first few times, it seems like they're just separate Proverbs that stand alone. But after a while, you start to realize that they're interconnected. And he uses means by showing us this. And one of the ways that he does this is by repeating these same phrases in verse 2 and verse 4. And he provides for us this beautiful sandwich. And I love sandwiches. 
Verse 2, it is better to go in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. He returns that thought in verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of the mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And then there is the meat of the sandwich. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Now you have to understand this. The meat is good, but the bread also makes a difference. I love a good corned beef sandwich. St. Patty's Day, my wife makes corned beef for me. I love it. But it has to be with sauerkraut on rye bread, or it is not a good sandwich. You can't put it on a white hamburger bun. You can't put it on wheat bread. You can't put it on plain white bread. It's got to be rye bread or no bread at all. So the bread has everything to do with this sandwich. One of the things he wants us to understand by these verses is we need to think wisely about life. And in doing so, we need to understand the brevity of life. And we need to keep this in mind as we live our life. The other thing is this, is that he uses the word heart three times in these verses. And this is the seat from which we make moral decisions. He helps us to understand this again in Proverbs 4.23. He says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It is not only the seat of our rationality and our intellect, but it's also, biblically, it is the seat of our emotions. It is the seat of our volition, our will. In other words, it is the seat of all spiritual life, just as it is the seat of all physical life. This is anatomy via God, not anatomy via the world. Because oftentimes in the world, when we think about heart, we think solely emotions. But biblically, it's the seat of everything. So this is crucial as Solomon walks through this. But he isn't getting morbid on us in this verse, in these verses that follow. You might think so if you read the New Living Translation where they say a wise person thinks a lot about death. You think, well, all right, now we're getting a little bit more to it here, Solomon. This is a little bit too heavy for me. But that isn't where he's going. He isn't telling us to hang out at the funeral home or the cemetery. And he tells us what he is saying this statement for. He gives us the why in the word because. This is why I'm telling you this. Because that is the end of every man, and living takes it to heart. In other words, every funeral anticipates our own. It's an odd thing when I thought about it, because memorial services can be very good. I was really nervous the first time I was asked to do one. You know, it's like your first memorial service and your first wedding, right? These are two of the toughest times. I shouldn't tell you this story, but I will. The senior pastor of a church, he was heading out of town on vacation. So he asked one of the young men in the church to, to take the pulpit that Sunday while he was gone. And as the pastor was leaving town, he said, oh, by the way, there's a funeral that I was supposed to do on Saturday. I would like you to cover that for me. This young brother's like, are you serious? So the pastor leaves town, and so the young brother was going to do the funeral service, so he went early, and he was going to meet with the family and view the body and all this stuff, and so they were going to have this family viewing and so on, and the family met with him and said to him, look, our mother passed away, and she had this boyfriend, and none of us in the family want him around at all during this. We don't like him. We don't care for the influence that he had in our mother's life in the last few years of her life, and we really don't want him present at this. 
So he says, okay, I think I can handle that. So the family goes into the back room at the, at the funeral home, and here is the body in the casket. It's open for viewing that is going to come later. And so this young brother's in there preparing himself, and all of a sudden he hears the door close behind him and turns around, and there's this older gentleman who was standing there. And he said, I was the boyfriend of this woman, and I just wanted to come pay my last respect. He said, I know that the family doesn't want me here, but I've just come in and I will say my, my last words and then I'll leave and I won't be a bother or anything. And so the young brother thought, okay, uh, sure, I, I, I can let you in. Just go ahead, do what you need to do, and then go. The family's in the back. They'll be there for a little bit, no problem. So the young man decides that he would give the man privacy, so he goes back to the room and he is standing with his back turned. And all of a sudden, the family starts walking in the door, and they see something, and they just burst out in outrage. The young man turns around to see this man has the woman out of the casket, and he's holding her and kissing her. Welcome to your first funeral service. Now, they don't all turn out that way. But Solomon says there's a good thing that we can learn from these things because Oftentimes, God gets our attention when we have to face our mortality. And this is what he wants us to see. But most of us don't think about our death. Most of us don't plan for it. Most of us spend our life trying to avoid it rather than thinking about it. But Solomon, he doesn't want us to spend every moment on it, but realize the benefit of recognizing that you are going to die. And the beauty of these kinds of services, for me as a minister, they are a good time to reflect. And so it's a great time for me to remind people, listen to me, you still have a chance to change. You're not gone yet. God is the God of second chances, but those chances end when you leave this life. But you still have time to change. You still have time to surrender your life to Christ. You have time to examine your life. There are things that need to be changed. There is time to confess. I've encountered several on their deathbed and they had sins they really wanted to confess. They were so terrified that these things were left undone and they could do nothing to remedy them or to resolve them and to just tell them that Christ died on the cross for their sins, past, present, and future, they have been cared for. All you have to do is receive by faith the gift of Christ. You can't go back and fix these things when you're leaving this life. Not only that, but we have time to forgive. It's amazing the, the rifts that can happen within the midst of families and those who are close family members are now divided and there are things that are left unsaid. And oftentimes, these times of memorial service is a time to remind people that you can reconcile. You're still both alive. You can do something about it. Not only that, but there is time then to plan ahead for the true future. Where do you go when you leave this life? Because we're all going to leave it. So Solomon wants us to think about these things, and so he takes us into verses 3 through 4, and he says, sorrow is better than laughter. And I'm, I'm going to end with this one. And the, the point that he is making, and I just remind you, he is saying laughter is good. It's good to laugh. My wife was drawing an observation about our life just recently, and she says, you know, we don't laugh as much as we used to. Part of it's just life, right? There's just so many things that can weigh us down. 
so many things to be serious about. But it's okay to laugh. God gave us a sense of humor. There are things that we should laugh off. So Solomon says, laughter is good, but sorrow is better in certain times. Why? Because there are certain things, certain lessons that we cannot learn except through experiencing sorrow. Somehow it's a way in which God gets our attention. Somehow it's a way in which our hearts are softened. And so I remembered this statement by the great terrible Oz and the Wizard of Oz. The Oz said to the ten man, hearts will never be practical until they are unbreakable. Now think about this statement. Hearts will never be practical until they are made unbreakable. This is totally not true. It's actually the reverse that is true. This is why I'm a buzzkill at, at movies. I, I wreck them for everybody. I can't help it. The reality is that hearts that are fragile are those that are more practical. Psalm 51. David writes this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices are God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In other words, when we go through times of sorrow, that is a time in which our heart is moldable. We are broken. We are soft. We are tender. Sometimes I need this as a man. I was raised on John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Ask my boys how I raised them up. You fall down, you just get up, rub some dirt on it, and get on with life. I remember I broke my hand playing football. I was knocked unconscious and came to. I went, showed my dad because my hand started to swell up huge, and he said, you're fine, go out and keep playing football. My mom pleaded with him that night. I could hear her in the kitchen she said, Have you, did you see the size of his hand? Something seriously wrong. He's got to go to the doctor. Now, I thank my father for that because he didn't raise me to be a cream puff. But sometimes I forget that I must also be compassionate and tender. And Solomon helps us to understand that times of sorrow and suffering are times when God can soften our heart to learn some things that we need to learn. And yes, they can be tough. But two things we need to remember. There is a lesson to be learned with whatever suffering we are going through. And there is a work to be accomplished. Sometimes there's multiple lessons. So ask yourself, when you're going through a difficult time of suffering in your life, what might be some of the lessons that God wants me to learn in this? Is it patience? Is it long-suffering? Or does my response to this, does it demonstrate faith? Does it show love for God and for others? Because oftentimes when you're going through suffering, you're not the only one going through it. Others are watching you and they're learning from how you respond. Do they see your Christ-likeness in this? Do they see the values of, of the things that are most valuable in life and the way that you handle them? Do they see the virtues that you're supposed to have? Do they see the commitment that you're supposed to have? The trust in the Almighty, do they see priorities being manifested in how you respond to suffering in your life? These are just some of the things that we need to ask ourselves. Because Solomon does say in verse 13 of chapter 7, Consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider this. Consider this. 
you never know always right away what God is going to do. But you can walk into moments of suffering in your life and realize he is doing something here. There is a lesson for me to learn. I was reflecting back and oftentimes are reminded in my, in my life of an accident I had years ago with a motorcycle and an elderly gentleman with Alzheimer's was behind the wheel of a car and took me out and basically just crushed the whole left side of my body essentially. The road back was really difficult. And I can still reflect back the first time I was in ICU, they decided to sit me up in what they called a cardiac chair, which was this flat piece of wood and it had hinges on it and it would bend. And so what they did was I had a hip cast on because it completely shattered this leg. And so I had the strap that strapped my legs to this board and then there was a strap that went across my chest. I couldn't sit myself up. I didn't have the physical capability to do that. And so they strapped me to this thing and they sat me up and I was there for all of a minute and I began to just pour sweat and I said, I can't breathe, I can't sit like this. So they laid me back down and thus began the process of recuperating. I had to strengthen my lungs because I had punctured my lungs and, and ruptured my spleen. But so when I was, I, they finally released me to go home. It was a, quite a while. They finally released me to go home, and I was in a hospital bed that they brought in for me at the house. And I still had the hip cast on and all that, but I needed to, to retrain my lungs and to strengthen them because I could hardly have a conversation. I couldn't get enough air to even speak words. So they gave me this device, and, if I, and you would blow in it, and there was this ball, and if you blew in it, you would raise the ball up, and the, and the goal was to blow in it hard enough that you can raise the ball and sustain it at the top of this tube, and you needed to be able to hold it there with one breath. When I first started the process, I couldn't even move the ball backwards and forwards. And I couldn't use anything on my left side of my body, so what I had to do was I took a shower rod and I stuck it underneath my left hand, and I would sit there in bed and I would raise my hand with my right hand. And the first time I did this, within a minute or so, I'm pouring sweat because of the exertion it took just to try and get my hand off of my lap. So I'm going through this and I started my second year of seminary while in the hospital bed. So I had friends who recorded my classes for me, a couple of my classes, and they would bring the recording and I would listen to the lectures and then I was teaching myself Hebrew from a hospital bed. In the midst of this, I'm now engaged and I'm going to be married in between the first semester and second semester of seminary. And I'm trying to go through all of this and I was bound and determined to walk down the aisle with my wife. No cane. So we're going through all of this. I'm looking towards the second semester of seminary. I've got that to worry about. I have to pay my down payment to register for school. I have to buy my books and seminary is not a cheap proposition in life. So here I am going to be married in between this. I'm trying to recoup all of this stuff. I feel like the waters are rising and I'm barely keeping my head above water. And I feel at times like everything is going to consume me. I lose my job. I have no money. I had a jar full of change when I got married. That's it. That's all I had to my name. And then there was a church split. 
And the church that my wife grew up in was the church that we were going to be married in. Well, so much for using the building. So now we had to find another church to be married in on top of that. Water's rising. What do I do with all of this? I think in the midst of this, right, most of the time I'm just trying to keep my head above water and not trying to get consumed by all of the stuff that's going on. So we get through all of this and then my mom finds out she has cancer. And she comes to me and she says, Stephen, I watched you go through all of this and how Christ enabled you to face it all. She said, I can deal with this cancer thing. You never know who's watching your life when you go through the times of suffering and sorrow. Solomon says laughter is good, but sometimes that sorrow, we learn lessons we couldn't learn otherwise. And sometimes it's not just you learning the lesson. Sometimes it's other people who are learning the lesson. Here the one who was supposed to be and has always been the one to teach me has now become a learner of. Not because of anything of me, but solely because God is at work. Sometimes he puts those bends in the road, those crooked things we can't straighten. But he enables us to face them. But we always know he's in control, do we not? Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to you for your goodness to us, for your grace and mercy in our lives. Father, so many things that you do give us to enjoy. And we praise you in those moments and we rejoice, Father, in those good things that you provide for us. But Father, help us to understand the value of the suffering that we can go through. Help us to understand the value of times, the sorrow and the lessons that it can bring to us. The way that it softens our hearts towards you, the way that they become moldable and shapeable because of what we are going through. Thank you for knowing each one of us so well that you know what we can handle and cannot handle. And knowing us so well that you know the things that we need in life to get us to where you want us to be. Father, no matter what happens in our life, may we always recognize the fact that you are in control, not only of the good days, but also of the bad ones. That although there are times that we find there are things in life that are bent that we cannot straighten, we can rest in the fact that you're the one that bent them. You're the one who's in control of those moments, those enigmas in life where we have trouble at times understanding what it is you're doing. May we just at least rest in the fact that we know that you are working out your plan. May we trust your sovereignty. May we trust your omniscience. May we trust your omnipotence. May we trust your goodness. May we trust your love. Thank you for the lessons we're learning through Solomon. Thank you for the truths that your spirit has recorded for us so that we can learn as well. Thank you for your blessings upon all your people, Father, for those who are here with us, safe and sound, Father, through all the difficulties and trials of the week. Thank you for the way that you sustain and uphold, and thank you for their faithfulness as they walk through these difficult times. 
May we always give you the glory and the praise. We pray these things in your name. Amen.